0: Hey, greetings, everyone. Lieutenant Colonel Allen West, and welcome to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. You gotta light
1: them up before they burn it down. Save Ooh, burn it
0: down. Save Before they burn it down, this episode of the Step Fassel Law podcast are brought to us by our dear friends. At the United States Concealed Carry Association, it was founded to help responsibly armed Americans like you. They're committed to providing life-saving self-defense resources to help you, your family, to be safe. When you activate your membership, you'll automatically get life-saving self-defense education, industry-leading training, plus self-defense liability insurance. Don't wait until it's too late. Click learn more below right now. And just as a reminder, the United States Concealed Carry Association is not an insurance company. A policy has been issued to the USCCA by Universal Fire and Casualty Insurance Company. That policy provides the association and its members with self-defense liability insurance subject to its terms, conditions, limitations, and exclusions. We'll be right back. Hey, greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Steadfast and Loyal podcast. And every now and then, you get one of those really, really, really smart people that you're going to have on for an interview. So I got to do a lot of research because, you know, I'm just a dumb paratrooper. used to jump out of airplanes, and I just want to make sure that I ask the right questions because it's so important that we inform, educate, and activate you. And one of the things that is perplexing is how the people up in Washington, D.C., or even at your local state-level governments, They always tell you, you don't understand the budgeting process. You don't understand the legislating process. Uh, You know, help us to get elected, but after that, go sit in a corner. I don't think that should be the case. And the gentleman that I'm going to talk to also does not believe that that should be the case, that this whole thing about debt and deficit spending and balancing the budget, it really is not that hard, especially when you have to do it yourself in your own home. So I am joined by Russ Vogt, who joined the Office of Management and Budget, OMB. He was the director under President Trump. He first served as the acting director, then as the 42nd director of the OMB for nearly two years. He was a member of the president's cabinet and was responsible for overseeing the implementation of the president's policy, management and deregulatory agendas across the executive branch. During the Trump administration, OMB was a key office in pushing for conservative victories and helping President Trump cut through bureaucracy. During his four years at OMB, Russ was one of Trump's most trusted and competent managers called by the economists the President's Toolkit. Prior to serving in the Trump administration, Russ spent nearly 20 years working in Congress and with grassroots and public policy organizations. He worked for seven years as vice president of Heritage Action America, Prior to this, he worked on Capitol Hill, serving as the policy director for the House Republican Conference and as the executive director of the Republican Study Committee. That is the conservative wing, if you want to call it that, of the House Republican Conference. And as the legislative assistant to U.S. Senator Phil Graham from Texas. Russ graduated from Wheaton College in 1998 and from George Washington University Law School in 2004. He lived in Virginia with his wife and two daughters, and he is currently the president of the Center for American Renewal. Renewal. Russ Vogt, thank you so much for joining us here to Step Fast and Law Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. I look
0: forward to it. Hey, let's jump right into it. You know, when we we hear all this discussion about, you know, the debt ceiling coming up and a lot of fear mongering, especially when you looked at the president's State of the Union address last week. And I just want to put things in context and, and then get your policy recommendations, what needs to happen with this debt. You know, I was born 62 years ago, 1961. The debt in the United States of America was $289 billion. When I came into Congress, the debt was a little over 14 trillion. When I left Congress two years later, it was 16 trillion. Now, that was 10 years ago when I left Congress. In 10 years we've gone from 16 trillion now to 32 trillion dollars in debt. We are redlining our economy when we talk about this whole issue of debt. What is the preeminent thing? If you were still there in the OMB uh, now as the president for the Center for American Renewal, how do we deal with this debt? How do we get our fiscal house back in order?
1: Well, I think what's incumbent upon us is to dispense with the notion that there is going to be uh, process fixes that you can come around and get people to be supportive of that will deal with the magnitude of what we're talking about. The only way to cut spending is to actually cut spending. Yeah. And it's not to come up with kind of gimmick, gimmicky uh, mousetraps that are the first time you've been able to um, kind of trick Congress into making cuts that they would otherwise not. Uh, we've got to be very, very clear upfront uh, in saying, you know, there are spending cuts that can be made that should be made, and I believe the central thing that's incumbent upon us right now is to rally all statesmen to realize that getting a handle on our debt is the same fight as dealing with the woke and weaponized bureaucracy that is aimed against the American people. And one of the things that I've, I've seen really for the last 20 years is that our budget hawks, our fiscal hawks, have focused on the unachievable or the harder to achieve as opposed to what a family budget does when they go after discretionary income, their things with it's easy for them to restrain. And then they go after the immovables that are a little bit harder, like their, their mortgage, their, uh, the kids, uh, uh, investment accounts. That's the way that it should work in DC. But instead our fiscal hawks have said, unless you touch social security and Medicare, you're not doing anything substantial to actually get a handle on the deficit. And as a result, We've done nothing. And so what our our organization has said and what we did under the Trump administration is we've, we've said, look, you've got to tackle the easiest stuff. And it just so happens to be that that's what funds the bureaucracy and that you have a vote on every single year through the appropriations process.
0: And that's one of the things that we have seen somewhat bastardized is the appropriations process, because, you know, an omnibus spending bill really is unconstitutional. Now They're supposed to come together, pass 12 appropriations bills. Why do you think there is such a reticence, a recalcitrance, Republican or Democrat, it seems does not matter up there, to get this done and – I applaud those 20 members that wanted to get fiscal ready, uh, regular order back, uh, reestablished in the House of Representatives and not continue to go down the path that we're on.
1: I think what you've seen in the last several decades is the buildup of a, a political cartel in Washington, D.C., where uh, the power is taken away from the, the rank and file members and the senators and invested in committee leadership, predominantly the Rules Committee and the Appropriations Committee. And they do all the business behind closed doors in an untransparent way. So that you never have any real debates, never real trade offs on the floor of the House and the Senate. And then what they do is they combine it all into one package, either a debt limit or an omnibus spending package, and they bums rush all the members, give them no time to read it and say there's going to be some massive cliff if they don't Uh, vote for that on that given moment. And that's how the cartel governs. They govern like two big bills per year, three bills per year. National defense authorization is another one. And they just bums rush. And what this group has done is that they've taken the power to do that away. They've stopped the rules committee with enough conservatives to change the outcome. And they've stopped the rules committee so that the cartel no longer has a unilateral say as to what comes to the floor so we're done with 1.7 trillion omnibus bills Mm -hmm. and i think that's an enormous result that can now as the cartel has to adjust they have to work backwards and say okay what's it going to take to get chip roy's view uh vote on the rules committee what's it going to take to get ralph norman's vote on the rules committee and we have a new paradigm that's operating in washington dc i i'm not given to being overly excited about what has been accomplished, but I honestly believe it is it is a, a transformative result and the opportunity to have a decentralized house for the first time since nineteen sixty one when Speaker Sam Rayburn took this power into the speakership.
0: Yeah, Speaker Sam Rayburn from uh, Texas, and of course the Rayburn House Office Building is named after him. It's so interesting that you call it the political cartel up there in Washington, D.C., because I think you're right And the the way that you saw many of the political cartel react and respond, calling people terrorists, calling people enemies of the state and all of these other attacks. And when you look at the political punditry that was out there, this was just 96 hours You know, if you were to look at how long it took us to get our Constitution, you know, signed, ratified, and and everything, that was years. So it's amazing to me that, you know, people start to look at these speakerships and all of these things, a status quo, a coronation, instead of really talking about what is our task and purpose to be here. And so along those lines, you know, one of the things that I've always wondered why we could not get to Because this is what people do in their homes, people do in their businesses. Why can't we get the federal government to go to a zero-based budgeting process instead of this baseline process where every year they start from the previous baseline and they increase from there? And when they talk about a cut to spending in their terms, the D.C. cartel terms, it's just a cut in the rate of the increase. Why can't we get them to do what everyone does, start at zero, and let's justify all of the government spending and the programs that are up there?
1: That's what we need to do. And when we just put out a budget in late December to give a a path forward for Congress, uh, balances in ten, and goes after all the woke and weaponized bureaucracy, that's what I did is I went through agency by agency mm-hmm. and said, you know, we're not going to go off of what your projected increase. I don't think you should exist. I don't think this entire line item should be something that the Center for Disease Control, to give you one example, should be doing. It, it, it explains why you lost all manner of focus during the COVID lockdowns and you were captured by the, the bureaucrats within your agency. So we have to do that. And yet we don't. And I believe it's because we don't have enough uh, people who care about spending focused on the right uh, issues, which is the bureaucracy and their, the way that they they budget. And ultimately it comes down to, are you willing to make, make cuts each and every year to these agencies that are weaponized against the American people? And I think that is a, a way to get people to focused on it. And we need people to, we need our budget hawks um, and I'm kind of, providing a new paradigm for my own crowd, we need budget hawks that go and care about reading the agency's uh, spending plans in a new way and not focusing only on uh, the, the, where they say the money is, which is in Social Security and Medicare.
0: No, you're absolutely right. And for our audience, you have to understand is that the budget of the United States of America, got the mandatory spending side, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, net interest of the debt. But then you have the discretionary side, what is defense discretionary and non-defense discretionary, which is really all of the government agencies. And I think that when you go back and you look since Jimmy Carter, the incredible expansion and growth of the federal government on that discretionary side is something that we need to look at. And So therefore, let's talk about, I spent 22 years in the United States uh, military, and I remember right before I was sworn in, they had me on Meet the Press with David Gregory. And he said, well, you know, Congressman-elect, do you think the defense budget is on the table? I said, absolutely right. He said, well, you're a Republican. You're not supposed to say that. I said, I know that there's fraud, waste, and abuse of spending in the military. And so when you talk about these cultural Marxist woke programs, DEI initiatives, all of these things. But also when I look at the Pentagon, Russ, this is nothing but a bureaucracy. And the people that are suffering are the men and women on the front lines who aren't getting the right training, not getting the right equipping to be able to go out there and fight and win our wars. So in your perspective, in your insights, do we need to start looking also at the defense budget and not just saying that's the sacred cow we can't touch?
1: Oh, absolutely. For no other, well, A, there, it, it, there's wastes there, there's inefficiency there, and the notion that uh, you're going to always be in a situation where if you if you accept the premise that you have to have automatic spending increases, you're never going to be able to save your country and be able to get after all aspects of spending that are up every single year in the discretionary portion that you just talked about. But you know, Air Force can't explain the fact that they have they paid twelve hundred dollars for a coffee cup. Uh, <laughs> there is there are all of the DEI uh, uh, examples of woke and weaponized within Department of Defense. Yes, and 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 so the, all of that has to be tackled. But there's also more systemic issues, which I have found, which is they're so bureaucratic that their own budget process can't even make strategic tradeoffs. So they. Budgets that would come to OMB would not have enough money for naval modernization and the space uh, components that were necessary for a war against China because of very kind of bureaucratic viewpoints about every service getting the same amount or the fact that we didn't have good understanding of what readiness actually was defined as. So it was it was basically defined in the minds of the people asking for the additional resources. And you'd have people that would go to congressmen and, or speakers of the House and say, we're going to run out of bullets. We're not running out of bullets. It's just you are, are, are using bureaucratic shell games to get more money, and we've got to be very, very intentional about funding capabilities and funding what's necessary and then making strategic choices about what is not necessary and then finding out where are we overcommitted in, this, in the world. Because a lot of these are requirements based on those commitments. And once you've got those requirements in place, it's like an escalator for more money. And it's never, ever... Uh, the trade-offs are never discussed as downstream in the budget process. That's what I found over four years of dealing with the Pentagon on these issues.
0: You know, you're absolutely right. And I think it has really come home to roost, if I could use that term. But everyone has seen with this recent, uh, the balloons uh, fiasco. And when you have the, the head of NORAD that stands up there and says that our sensors didn't pick these things up. You just ask yourself, well, then what have you been spending your money on in NORAD if you're not able to cover and protect the airspace of the United States of America?
1: Yeah, it, it is. It, they're, they're, they go off of, it's a kind of their version of baseline budgeting, right? They go off of uh, the same conversations that they've had last year, they're having this year, they expect to have next year. There is not a good place within that to have a, a a paradigm shifting conversation. We, we had to do it uh, my last year because mm-hmm. I got tired of being people, people being critical with these massive defense increases that we were doing, that we were underfunding some capabilities like nuclear modernization, mm-hmm. uh, naval, uh, the, the size of the naval fleet. And I said, well, guys, why are we, why are we not funding this the way it needs to be funded? And ultimately it was because we had not figured out until that point, how to hardwire the budgeting process to achieve results. And it took about a year to fix that. But that's, that's what we, we have this, um, this calcified bureaucracy at the Department of Defense that they themselves don't ask their own strategic questions except at the smallest of dials and margins. And that's not how you get strategic choices that, that get made from people like you and others who bring a paradigm-shifting view to how we should keep a country safe and yet deal with the, the fact that we can't afford the government that we have.
0: Yeah, it's amazing to me that you know we have the smallest surface warship fleet that we have ever had. China has outpaced us with the navy, but yet you can go over to the Pentagon, you can see an admiral left and right and all over the place and general officers. But yet we have cut down our military, we've cut down the Marine Corps, the Army, you know, all of these branches, and so we are not able to really be out there with the type of readiness that we need. In the Heritage uh, Military Readiness Report that came out in November articulated that but yet these headquarters continue to grow like i say the pentagon the combatant commands all of these different places but let's just shift um because again talking about defense and protecting this country when you look at what is happening on our borders now we know we can't protect our airspace but now we can't even protect our own borders on the ground to me that's an incredible budgetary shortfall because number one We are not funding our Border Patrol agencies. We are not funding, you know, even our state national guards to be able to contend with this. But even worse, now we're admitting in millions of people that we're going to provide taxpayer-funded benefits to. I mean, help me to make sense of this, Russ.
1: Now, we're the only country, I think probably in history, that has cared so little and had our national security establishment care so little about a completely open border along one half of the entire of the country. I mean, where, where can you look back in history where the your your national community community could not have cared less about what is going on, on along the side of the border? And we would we would ask, you know, what are we seeing in terms of intel? We don't think about that. I mean, those, the national security community should be driving these conversations, mm-hmm. and yet they are not because they've been politically captured by this viewpoint that this is just a, a human migration and economic problem when it is in fact not. It is a security problem. We have cartels that have operational control of the southern border. Nothing happens along that border that the cartels have not blessed. We basically have ISIS along the southern border, and yet that's not viewed as a national security threat. So um, it's a major problem. We need uh, uh, strategies and solutions. We put forward uh, two in particular one, to treat the migration masses and the cartels uh, as an invasion. And we yes. have called upon um, statewide office holder Greg Abbott, who has commander in chief authorities. Not just to declare it an invasion but then to take the steps of to remove those individuals across the border he has not done that mm-hmm. he's effectively come up with uh, cute ways of doing catch and release by calling it an invasion where he brings the individuals uh, who have he's interdicted to the border not across the border to yeah. the border where he then catches and releases them again so uh, we need we need uh, a real uh, strategy that go- Governor Abbott adopts. That's number one. We also need to, to lay the predicate for a new administration. I don't trust this administration will do it, for a new administration to, to treat the cartels as if they are a military threat.
0: And they are.
1: And, and to go in that direction. Yeah.
0: They They absolutely are. And I often tell people that you know, being in Afghanistan, the cartels are no different from the Taliban. They are a transnational narco-criminal terrorist organization, and they have billions of dollars. They have an army. They have an intelligence and surveillance structure. They have a logistic structure. When you go down there on the border and you see the wristband tags based upon what different cartel, I mean, they are controlling. They have their respective sectors and zones, and they're fighting the turf war not just on the south side of Rio Grande but now on the north side, Because it's about competition. So it's very difficult, coming back to the budget issue, it's very difficult for people here in Texas uh, and people across America to see $40 billion or however much now going to Ukraine for them protecting their border. But yet we're sitting here in the United States of America, and we're saying, just come on across. And this is not what Kamala Harris says. It's, It's not about climate change. We have 160 different countries. We have seen now an 800 percent increase in Chinese nationalists, like 39 last uh, January. And now this January, we had close to 2000 Chinese nationalists, national citizens coming across our border, Uh, terrorists, people on the terrorist watch list. And so you're right. The Constitution is very simple in its language. Article 4, Section 4, the federal government has a responsibility to protect the states from invasion. Article 1, Section 10, Clause Number 3 says what the states can do if actually invaded. So put on, I mean, to me, this is simple. And I cannot understand it why here in Texas, and previous to the new governor in Arizona, I mean, this new governor is not going to do anything, but the governor in Arizona, why do we have Republicans in Texas and Arizona that won't do what the Constitution enables them to do. I don't care about the cute little political optics. If you're going to designate someone as a terrorist organization, there are some very specific things you have to do to go after them, but we're not doing it. Help me understand why.
1: Well, I think you're putting your finger on a major, major problem that we have on the right, which is we are led by people who don't know what time it is in this country and that they are concerned about confrontation with the federal government, and we have to have states and state governors and legislatures that are willing to stand up to the federal government, and 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 interpose where their rights and their duties are uh, being overrun. And and right now we have a you have a governor in Texas that flat out doesn't want to have that fight with with the, the federal government. They they believe that there is going to be. Um, conflict between uh, the federal agents and the state troopers, and yet doesn't go down the, the the path of execution to put themselves in a position where that doesn't have to be the case. There are ways, there are strategies, there are ways to execute this, this strategy, this initiative, this effort, in a way that allows Texas and Arizona, if we had gotten Governor Kerry Lake, to put them in a position to be successful. But the mere thought of that type of brinksmanship gives them night terrors. And that's, we have to get beyond that, or we're never going to save our country. We're not going to save our country without a little bit of confrontation. We're not going to save our country without a little bit of what you saw the the media call the fight over Kevin McCarthy's speakership chaos. Mm -hmm. It wasn't chaos. It was how the process was meant to work. And yet on the right, we've had uh, such fear of anything that is not uh, just smooth sailing and uh, preordained script uh, uh, manner of execution. And and until we change that, we are not going to save our country.
0: Well, it's amazing to me because when you talk about Governor Abbott, Texas is now number one for human trafficking in the country. Dallas and Houston, top two cities for sex trafficking in the country. Uh, this thing about fentanyl, this is a chemical warfare attack against the United States of America. It comes from China. The cartels will refine it, manufacture it, bring it across. You know, everything that is there is it's about just showing the courage to stand up. And when you abdicate your role and responsibilities as the federal government, that's why we have states. And, you know, it was free and independent states that created the United States of America. The Tenth Amendment is very clear about what it says. Those powers not specifically delegated, enumerated to the federal government, reserved to the states and to the people. That's why I think states have to step up and have that strong leadership. I'll let you close out and and just kind of give us your assessment about what happens in the next couple of years as far as our budgetary process and as far as what we see happening on the border.
1: Well, I think you're seeing a great awakening in the political context towards the reality of of the types of uh, of what is necessary to save the country. And slowly, slowly, our political class is check is catching up. Um, and so I think you are seeing versions of that in Florida with Governor DeSantis. I think I think Texas has to catch up. We can't have Texas. um you know, with, with such control over the state apparatus not being a red state sanctuary in the same way that Florida is. I think you're seeing that with uh, the power sharing agreement that now exists on the House of Representatives. And more and more of this, I think we will see um, greater paradigm shifting opportunities to be able to save our country. We're going to keep putting out our ideas, uh, but it, it, it's incumbent on the people. Honestly, I think the grassroots is leading. When you see people going to the microphone to, and, and risking losing their job at a town hall uh, because they're going to stand against groomers in the schools or CRT in the schools, they're showing the political class what real courage is in a way that didn't really exist. Even when we were dealing with Obamacare and there was a massive outcry about premium increases, you weren't going to lose your job. Now you're going to lose your job if you're in the grassroots and you're in this woke uh, corporation or community, and we're seeing real courage that I think is having an impact within the halls of Congress and, and, and within our state governments. We need it to happen quicker, uh, but we're going to that's my hope, that's my expect, expectation for the years ahead.
0: Well, I want to thank you for what you continue to do as the president of the Center for American Renewal and also following along from your time as the director in the OMB. Where can people follow you and everything that uh, you guys are doing at the Center for American Renewal?
1: Appreciate it. They can get us at our website, americarenewing.com, and they can get me at all the social channels at at Russ B-O-U-G-H-T.
0: If there are two things you could say to the everyday common American to get them activated, what are the two things that they could do?
1: Number one, pick an issue where you're going to be an expert on. You can be an expert on it, and you can know more than your member of Congress does. Let the, Wake up in the morning with the responsibility to change your country. Let it rest on your shoulders and realize that you can be not an armchair critic but a decisive actor to save our country if you know those issues and then you grow your network of people that look to you for leadership, you can and will make a difference on that issue. And as you get confidence to be a leader, you can do it on many more.
0: You know, I had one of my standing rules as a battalion commander was to be the expert in your lane and knowledgeable in another. And Benjamin Franklin said it's a republic if you can keep it. That's our responsibility. Russ vote. thank you so very much for joining us here at the Step Faster Law Podcast
1: my pleasure thanks for having me take care before they burn it down